Welcome to the Ransom Tart Podcast. Welcome back to our faithful listeners, and hello and welcome to our new listeners. I'm John Eldridge, and you have stepped into a very special series that we're running on the sacred romance, which is a book, of course, that I wrote with my partner, Brent Curtis. And many of our followers know Brent by name and have loved his writing over the years, but have never had a chance to hear him teach. Well, we found an old conference series, and it's going to sound like an old conference series, but we just thought this was too good not to share with you. So we're in the midst of airing that series. This is session five, and this week you get to hear Brent speaking on our adversary, Legends of the Fall. I always feel in one way that I would just like to end the series after John gives that talk. Uh, Just pass out swords and spears and go out into the neighborhoods and contend for the hearts of everyone captured by the evil one. And yet, Act 3 is not quite over, and we still live in a story where he is on a very long leash among us. And there's a certain way that you live in a story when you know there is evil around. Uh, If you were walking through a neighborhood in the South Bronx, you'd probably not have quite the same demeanor as you might in a neighborhood in Colorado Springs, although that's not as true as it used to be. But think for a moment, just with a couple of movies, what if you were just sitting in Sleepless in Seattle, and you've kind of heard a little bit about it from your friends, and you know it's a love story, and you love Meg Ryan, or at least I do, and Tom Hanks, and you kind of know they're going to get together and you want them to, so you're just kind of there waiting for that communion to happen. But think of sitting in in another movie, maybe like The First Alien. Has everybody here seen that? If you remember, it's the story about this uh, expedition in space, and they get these strange signals and go down to this planet, and there's a whole bed of embryos of some alien creature. They don't know what. Very dark film, lots of shadow, lots of darkness. Well, one of the men who's exploring, one of the creatures pops out and attaches itself to his visor. And so they carry him back to the ship with this thing still clinging to his visor. Can't get it off. Finally, of its own accord, it lets go They take off the visor, get him breathing again, think he's going to be all right. And then they're kind of sitting there at a meal together after this and just talking about being glad to get headed back towards home and all that. And the guy begins to choke and cough, stands up, his chest bursts open, and this alien creature that has laid its eggs inside of him, the baby comes out, baby in quotes, rushes off and hides in the crevices of the ship. And so you know there's this creature out there, and they are all locked on the ship with him. And at first, the creature, you just get the feeling he's hiding from them. But as the movie goes on, it is clear that he is hunting them. And they have no place to go. The ship is his domain. And as John said... That's much more like the story we are living in right now on the planet Earth. We have an alien evil who is running this domain, who has power, 
who has cunning, who has assets far beyond what any of us as human beings possess. And he is loose among us. We are the hunted as long as Act 3 goes on. The amazing thing about the story is, as I said, when I hear John tell his part of the lecture, I always want to just go out and, and begin suburban warfare or, you know, Don Quixote, Brent Curtis, suburban knight out in the campaign. And yet, though we tell the story and even though we felt like the Lord gave us those words to the book and put that together, when we don't tell the story for a while, the story dims. Last fall, we were doing the sacred romance at a little church here in South Denver, and we hadn't done it for about four months. We came up to have dinner with the pastor who was hosting us, sat down with him, and he began to tell us how excited he was that the sacred romance was coming and how much people had been stirred and encouraged by the book. And both John and I kind of sat there feeling, well, really? You mean it's that important or there's something good here? It just felt kind of the loss of whatever it was that the larger story stirs to life in us. Something seems to happen to the power of the story in our hearts. Two weeks from now, you won't feel it quite the way you did as John sat down. It seems like there's another storyteller loose among us. What happens to us as we go about our everyday lives? There seems to be another voice, doesn't there, that whispers in our ear a very different message, a message that often comes in kind of a condemning and minor key, a key that dilutes or even erases the truths that John has poured his heart into that last hour. Some of this we can ascribe just to the pathos of living under the fall. We know things aren't the way they're meant to be. And yet if we think for a moment about some of the everyday arrows that we've all suffered, or that we all suffer just in a given week, you have an argument with your spouse, oftentimes it's right before you come to do a seminar like this, or go away to do a Valentine's Day retreat. I had that experience last year. Jenny and I had one of the biggest fights we'd ever had, and then I flew away to tell people how to do their marriage in Puerto Rico. Um, a dinner date with friends is canceled. We rush out late from work to find out there's a flat tire in our car. Sometimes out of the blue, anxiety and dread seem to strike us out of nowhere. When those things happen, rarely do we say, everyone, well, you know, life has its disappointments. I wonder how Christ wants to use this in my spiritual development. Is that your response with things like that? But isn't that the response that the life of faith would really call us to? There seems to be something else going on in us other than that. Another interpretation of those events that the storyline of faith, hope, and love doesn't seem to quite address. As we walk away from that argument with our spouse, we often think of the anger in their eyes or the anger is what pierces us, what stays with us. Certain sentences seem to offer themselves to us somewhere between our head and heart, they interpret the meaning of the event very differently than the one I suggested. The sentences are often things like this. Things will never change. You'll never have the love you want. You deserve better than this. About, actually, it's been six months ago now. I think it was in the spring. 
I was sitting in that room where men sometimes go to read, and uh, my wife came in and just said, Brent, what do you think of this jacket that I bought? My wife loves to go to places like Goodwill and uh, you know the thrift stores and come up with these great bargains. I always wanted to go to Dillard's and just buy something really good. There's something behind all that between us, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. But anyway, this particular day, she had this kind of a, a gray plaid pullover, terry cloth, somewhat used-looking jacket. She said, what do you think? I hate that when that happens as a husband and you have to tell the truth. I said, uh, well, gosh, and to be honest, it's kind of ugly. And she got this look on her face. What I wanted her to do was just kind of come over and punch me and say, you jerk. You know, just kind of let it roll off. But she got this look on her face kind of like, I try so hard to please you and you just so rarely get it. And I know this path between us. When it's been there, I know the nosedive that has often come. And something began to go on in me at that point that started out with, no, 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 don't go there. Just just kid me back. Call me a jerk or whatever. And then it turned to, oh, this, I hate this. Why does it always have to go like this? And from there it went to, This really stinks. I am so tired of this between us. And finally, this is just too much. We ought to just get a divorce and forget the whole thing. This all happened within 30 seconds. (laughs) Right about then, a moment of clarity hit me, and or maybe the Lord spoke to me, and I said, Brent, don't you think you're slightly overreacting (laughs) given what's taken place here? And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I am. So what is this? Oh, yeah, spiritual warfare. I had a series of events in my life that had been more and more helping me to realize that that takes place. And I stopped and I said to myself, in the name of Christ, I reject all of those lies. And I pray, Jesus, your blood across my heart, mind, and spirit. Satan, get out of my face in Christ's name. As I said that, the whole thing lifted. And I went out in the kitchen and said, well, it's not a bad jacket. I wouldn't have picked it, but it's okay. And she kind of smiled. What went on right there in that small, everyday moment? Remember, it's not just the arrows we see in our life. It's the message of the arrows that speak to us most deeply. The voice that speaks this message to us is a voice that speaks in tones and words that are vaguely familiar. So familiar, many of us, probably all of us, have learned to think of the voice as our own. It's a voice that constantly questions the wisdom of hope and the life of faith and love that flow from it. Indeed, every good story does have a villain, one who's the hero's mortal enemy, one whose line is, this town's not big enough for the both of us, one who has a grudge to settle with the hero and is willing to get back at him any way he can. Sacred romance also has such a villain, the worst one you've ever come across in your most fearsome nightmares. Someone like uh, Robert De Niro in Cape Fear or the cop in Terminator 2, or even Robert Mitchum in the first version of Cape Fear. 
someone whose heart is so cold and whose agenda is so singular that nothing else matters than the destruction of your heart. I came across this part in the story in a somewhat dramatic way about seven years ago. I'm from a somewhat evangelical background, not charismatic by any means. To be honest, the most boring sermons that I ever heard were on Ephesians 6, you know, the one about put on your spiritual armor, because it was like somebody kept telling me about how to wear hockey goalie gear. But then when I said, okay, well, when do we play the game? They would say things like, well, you don't have to worry because hockey games never happen. Basically, I was being told that spiritual warfare was only something that non-believers had to worry about. Once you became a Christian, the Spirit of Christ pretty much took care of everything, and there was no real battle left to fight. Now, maybe I misunderstood a lot of what I was taught by my spiritual mentors, but that's how I heard it. But that's where I was when this event began to happen. A client had come to me with a little problem with anger, they said. Within a couple of weeks, I began to realize there was a lot more going on than anger. And the person sitting in the room with me often was not the person that originally came to counseling. There was someone else sitting in the room behind their eyes. As I came to realize, this person had been in a satanic cult for 32 years, introduced into it in a very evil way by someone in their own family, a person of tremendous courage who had been spending six years trying to fight their way out of all that had been done to them and all the spiritual power that had been put into their soul through rituals in this cult. Satanic cults, just as a byline, uh, I didn't know they existed seven years ago. They are networked all across this country and undoubtedly all across the world. They are preparing for the time of the Antichrist. And the evil that they do is very purposeful in that it is to open the window from the spiritual world to this one and invite the evil one in. All this was going on in this person's story that came to me with a little problem with anger. As we struggled through many things and went through, uh, I learned just so much about spiritual warfare, deliverance ministry, the whole issue of confronting Uh, what goes on. This person was a believer, by the way. They had asked Christ into their life. I thought that meant the war was over. It was not. It only meant that Christ had given them a foothold in their heart that said, I will anchor you here. Fight the battle. As we continued on, uh, the cult that this person was from began to call and, and threaten their life. My office building was set on fire. I got a call uh, one night, two weeks later on the phone. My wife answered it, and a very pleasant male voice said, Are you warm enough yet? My secretary began having nightmares of exactly the same kind my client was having. A sister that I was very close to growing up began to have those same horrible nightmares. It was very clear what Satan was saying. Okay, you want to mess with me? You want to come out and be in the larger story? We'll see. My son, who was just a very nice little boy at that time, seven years old, wore bright colored clothes every day, just a typical seven-year-old, began to dress entirely in black every day. 
uh, one day we were walking down the street, just kind of bouncing the basketball, taking a family walk. I said, Drew, don't step out in traffic. Watch the cars. He took the ball, he threw it on the ground, and just walked in the opposite direction. I asked him to walk. At night, he would lay in his bed, call us in, and say, and this is still hard, but, but he would say, Daddy, something's bothering me. And I don't know what it is. And I knew what it was. But I felt so helpless in knowing how to fight for him at that point. And I said to him rather weakly, well, Drew, you can pray to ask Jesus into your heart and he will help you fight this battle. But he said to me, that doesn't work, Daddy. I tried it. I felt helpless. I got up and walked out of the room. I just went and walked around our neighborhood. I came back in an hour. And uh, at that point, Jenny came up and said, Drew did come and say that he wanted to pray that prayer, but he did it to himself. So I didn't know where that would go. He went to bed that night. I didn't know what would be different. But all of that to say, I thought Satan just hung around doing things like making bad people swear or rob 7-Eleven stores. You know, those kinds of obvious sins. But his warfare is so much more insidious than that Where he attacks us is in the everyday events of our lives. He comes in as the storyteller and attacks us from that place. Just to go back and pick up for a moment the story that uh, where John left it off, Ezekiel 28 tells us this about Satan, that he was one of God's guardian cherubs that he walked on the very fiery stones before God's throne, one of the highest angels. You were blameless in all your ways, God said, from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth, and I made a spectacle of you before kings. So here he is, down there with us. And as John said, Michael and the angels fought against Satan. They were thrown out, and he was hurled to earth, he and his angels with him. T.S. Eliot says, The great snake now lies ever half awake at the bottom of the pit of the world until he awakens in hunger. And his hunger is for our hearts. Picking up the scene through Milton in Paradise Lost, this is a very poignant scene, so poignant that some people accuse Milton of being more sympathetic towards Satan and his angels than he was towards God. But at any rate, he portrays Lucifer. They've been cast over the walls of heaven. Lucifer's lying face down in a lake of fire and drags himself to a small island where he raises his head and looks around to see his heavenly army strewn across the lake of fire, the glow of heaven still upon them, in Milton's words. Beelzebub, his chief lieutenant, drags himself to the island and says to him, you have to speak. You have to put hope back in the hearts of our legions so that they will once again follow you. So Satan raises his head 
And Milton says, thrice he essayed to speak, and thrice, in spite of scorn, tears such as angels weep burst forth. Before Satan could speak in hell, he had to use contempt, scorn, to kill his own heavenly heart. And there's something very instructive in that picture about his warfare with us. Because that same scorn is what he would like to use to destroy the hearts of God's beloved. All the legions come up and they have a war council and they decide, what do we do now that we've been thrown out of heaven? One suggests assault again on the walls of heaven. And if we die in the attempt, so be it. Another suggests, why don't we just lay low and maybe God will forget about us and we can do what we want. Finally, Beelzebub says, guys, this is ridiculous. We've already, our fate has been determined by our defeat and we have no recourse. Heaven fears no assault from us. But what if we find the seed of some new race called man about this time to be created, like to us, though less in power and excellence, but favored more, To them, let us bend all our thoughts to learn what creatures there inhabit, of what mold or substance how undued, and what their power and whence their weakness, how attempted best by force or subtlety, though heaven be shut and heaven's high arbitrator sit secure in his own strength. This place may lie exposed to the utmost border of his kingdom, left to their defense who hold it. Here, perhaps, some advantageous act may be achieved by sudden onset, either with hellfire to waste his whole creation or to possess all as our own and drive as we were driven the puny inhabitants or, if not drive them, seduce them to our party that their God may prove their foe and with repenting hand abolish his own works." This would surpass common revenge and interrupt his joy in our confusion and our joy upraise in his disturbance when his darling sons hurled headlong to partake with us shall curse their frail originals and faded bliss, faded so soon. That describes Satan's heart towards everything on the earth. What he would like to use is the raw power that he tried to use in heaven. But until he can get to that place again, his object with us all is to seduce us to his party through reinterpreting the story in our hearts. Satan's strategy is to harm God by mounting an attack on his new romance, us, either by direct assault or by seduction. In the movie Amadeus, As you remember, it's the story of Mozart and another man named Salieri, who was also a composer, a gifted musician, gifted enough to recognize that Mozart was the picture of perfection as far as being able to express his soul through music. And Salieri could only watch this perfection from afar and grieve that God had not given it to him instead. And there's something about the picture of what went on in Satan's heart in heaven when he realized that all the honor and glory was being given to Christ. Satan was a high angel of great wisdom and beauty, but when Christ was revealed, he saw true perfection, and his heart became full of jealousy 
and rage. And Amadeus, it's kind of being told from Salieri as an old man in an insane asylum because the rage and jealousy that he's lived with have literally eaten up his heart. Back when he was still the court composer in Vienna, and Mozart's wife had brought him some of Mozart's music, hoping that Salieri could use his influence in the court to get Mozart a job teaching some students. And so Salieri is looking at the music, and his heart is struck as he looks on perfection. And then as an old man, he tells what he determined to do from that point on, because God is not just. That is a a pretty good picture of of Satan's heart towards us all. And, And the question is, should we expect force or seduction? Peter tells us the story of the roaring lion. That should be fairly easy to identify. I remember once when Jenny and I first got married, she had this really ugly car. It was a yellow Opal Cadet, about this high. And we went through great adventure with it. And even though they have fences between you and the lions, a lion came up to my window and kind of roared at us. I wanted a lot more protection than that Opal Cadet around me. Where should we look to the lion? Reviewing the story for a minute, we realize that Satan has lost the battle twice. Once by power, he was thrown from the walls of heaven. A second time was when? Right. When Christ went to hell, preached the gospel to many captives, held out his hand for the keys to sin and death, Satan had to give them into his hands. And Christ left hell, leading many captives to freedom because of the purity of his life. He could not be held there. Scripture also tells us that in the last days, Satan will again resort to force as he empowers the Antichrist and satanic cults, which we have the misfortune to work with so many these days that have come from that background. His power is very visible and demonstrable there. But until he can return to the power he'd like to use, seduction is his main tactic. Remember even the garden, as John said, Eve didn't have the story quite straight. When God came up and asked her, did God say you shouldn't eat from this tree? She said, yeah, we shouldn't eat from it or touch it. She had the story a little bit off, kind of a very bizarre thought since this was still before the fall. We don't know whether Adam didn't tell it to her clearly or whether she hadn't heard it clearly. Whatever had happened, Satan recognizes that her storyline is not quite right. He lunges in and says, that's not true. This is the real story. If you eat that, you will have wisdom and be like God. And Eve, seeing the fruit that it was good to look at, enticing to the senses, did so. Gave some to her husband. The other amazing thing is that Adam, the one who had received is a good part of the story from God, about what he was in charge of, about what was good to do, what not to do, stood silently by, saying nothing. He did not speak into the wrong story. Satan is kind of the spin jockey of this world, always reinterpreting the events, the everyday things that happen to us. Scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, the deceiver, the serpent. Remember the everyday events and the sentences that come with them? That's where he works. He uses those things from our everyday lives to weave a very different story than the one God is telling. Last night, you remember I mentioned, 
What he convinced me that I should live in is the story of the cowboy hero riding off into the distance. Underneath that, he convinced me of another thing, that there was not much good going on in the person called me. He comes to most of us, everyone, as the storyteller, and you must think about that in your life. How does he come to you with a story that does not match up with that of faith, hope, and love? He covers it all up with a sentence, I'm not really here, it's just you struggling with all these things. And oh, by the way, where is God anyhow? Doesn't he care? Think with me for a minute about a little girl And so sadly, I've heard the story so many times in my 10 years as a counselor. But her father climbs into bed with her one night and is inappropriate uh, in some ways that a father should not be with a daughter. And the little girl feels it in her heart, although she may not have the words to describe it. And so she goes and tells her mother, who says, don't be silly. Your father wouldn't hurt you. That's just his way of loving you. She now has a choice, doesn't she? One, trust what her heart is telling her and face the total abandonment of both of her parents. Or two, tell herself she really is foolish and she should be ashamed to think such things about her father. Picture for a moment with me, if you would, the heart as a house with many rooms. If she goes with that second choice, the one that says, I was foolish to have felt those things because they really were there. It's like a light is turned off in one of the rooms of her heart and a door closes and she can never go into that room again with true desire, desire to be loved in truth by her parents. Where does Satan set up his workshop? He can only do it under the cover of the lie. Satan goes into that room closed off in that little girl's heart and sets up his equipment and begins to accuse her from there. Whenever she goes near her desire, she's faced with that dilemma. If she dates and a boy wants to be sexual, even if she doesn't, she has to tell herself it's what she really wants, whether she does or not. Do you see how it works Satan is in that room saying, you've got a choice. You can admit what happened with your father, and maybe someone will lead you through grieving to healing. Who will that be? Your mother wasn't that one, was she? Who else is there? What will you do? Now she has to convince herself that things that have been done to her are what she really wanted and that are done with the good intentions of others. So now when she's out on a date with a boy, 15 years later maybe, or 10, and he wants to be sexual, she has to tell herself, that's what I want. If she doesn't, if she goes back to the honesty of her own heart, she must now face all those ways and all those things that have been done to betray her. And that's how Satan works in a very primary way. Think of your own wounds. Think of how they were handled. Think of what you did with that particular room in your heart. Those are where spiritual strongholds are set up. In satanic cults, of course, what they do is go about to create as much damage as possible so that Satan can take control of the whole house because the horror that the people are put through in those places is too much to believe. 
They are put in places especially where they are most longing for protection, for help. And then when they are in touch with that longing for someone to rescue them, then they are harmed again in the worst imaginable way. Do you see it? I will put you in touch with the thirst of your heart, and then I will show you what a fool you are to be that thirsty. That's Satan's way of working in all of our hearts as the storyteller. Room by room, he uses the lie, which seems to offer us some control. The little girl doesn't have to deal with her mother and father's sin against her. And how could she as a child of seven or eight? She seems to have some control, but she has to give away room after room until she's living literally in a corner of the attic of her heart with much of her energy committed to keeping the doors of those other rooms closed. That's Satan's goal with each one of us. Remember Cinderella? She had a longing to go to the ball, but he kept speaking to her through the voices of the stepsisters, telling her all she was good for was living in the basement and being a maid that handled the ashes and handled all the sisters' daily goings-on. And that's his attack on us all. As soon as we put ourselves in touch with desire, he begins the attack to send us back where we came from, back to the cellar. I used to think as I was looking at my kid's book as uh, I was young, gosh, look at Cinderella. Can't she see how beautiful she is? Why does she listen to these lies? But Cinderella could only see in her mirror darkly. And so she remained in prison until the prince came to get her. And luckily, the prince is a romantic who will not give up until he finds us. He comes no matter what. How do we go about resisting the enemy's work in our lives, everyone? How do we take those heart rooms back where he set up his strongholds? Answer, by allowing ourselves to thirst deeply again for things that are light years out of our control. We begin to allow ourselves to enter in once more to true desire. Paul says in Galatians 3, we find life not by doing things for God, but by embracing what God arranges for us. The question is, if I enter into my desire again, if this young girl, this little girl, enters in desire, into desire again at the age of 18, will any boy honor her heart If she says, I don't want to be sexual, any boys say, that's okay. What I'm really interested in is your heart anyhow. If she enters into that much desire again, will God come through for her? That's the question. We begin to remove those strongholds, everyone, when we begin to allow ourselves to mourn our losses in the hope of being comforted. Remember the Beatitudes. They aren't about going out and doing more religious stuff. They are about entering more deeply into the desire of our heart. Blessed are you when you mourn, said Jesus, for you will be comforted. We begin to allow ourselves to admit when we're at the end of our rope, realizing that when we put things down, God has more freedom to work. We begin to hunger and thirst for things that only Christ can bring to pass. And as we pray, we begin to realize that Christ is our true food. 
I've been praying a lot for my family in the last few years. My brothers and sisters and I grew up in, as I mentioned, three broken homes for a while. We hung together as survivors. Then all the things of our heart begin to erupt between us. We didn't know how to solve them. And there's a separation between us all, even today as I stand here. But I just begin to pray, Jesus, enter into the wounds of my brothers and sisters and my own. I'm not going to try hard to do anything. I don't even know what to do. I was a family hero growing up. It's part of why I'm a counselor, the guy that tries to solve problems. But as I've just prayed that prayer, not knowing how God would work, I see rivers of life beginning to flow between my brothers and sisters again, and I, very small, but there. We begin to see forgiveness from this place of being willing to admit our desire again, Forgiveness is not just a kind of abracadabra, but a willingness to reopen our heart to desire and love in the very places we've been damaged by the sins of others, even as we release them to Christ for both his judgment and his mercy. And remember, releasing anyone to Christ is no small thing. Jesus said, these little ones belong to me. And if you harm them, you would be better off if a millstone were hanged around your neck and you were thrown into the bottom of the ocean, you will be better off if you were never born, if you harm these little ones I have entrusted into your care. Releasing someone into God's judgment and his mercy, even though they have sinned against you, is no small matter. If I just go over real quickly, everyone, a panorama of the enemy's work in our lives. He accuses us to God and God to us. In our marriages, marriage, Paul tells us, is the deepest portrait of God's love for the earth, the way a husband loves his wife. Does Satan want a portrait like that, a Rembrandt, hanging in plain view? If you are married, you must pray for your marriage. You must pray spiritual warfare prayers for the life of your marriage, for your wife's heart, for your husband's heart, because to think that Satan is not wanting to throw a bucket of paint on your Rembrandt would be very naive. It is a primary place where he's at work. Family bloodlines, since Freud, we've kind of come to understand the the journey of our families through the psychological storyline. You know, the Joneses have a primary conflict between their personal boundaries and the actualization of ego gratification needs, you know, that kind of stuff. But the real story is our families have a story and Satan weaves them together in particular ways. The spiritual story of my family, as I look back, is a number of hardworking, silent men who moved over to the edge and abdicated leadership of their families, and some fairly gifted women who were very emotionally thirsty who kind of moved into that void and took over. And you can just see, as I look back at my family, how each generation has married not for intimacy but for safety. There is an attack on my family line that has gone on for generations there is also an attack on your family line that's according to the particular wounds and the particular sins that have gone on in the life of your family before you. The scripture tells us the sins of the parents are passed on to the second and third generation. I used to think that meant God was doing that, and I thought that's awful. But what the scripture is really saying is, no, 
if nothing is redeemed, if no knight rides out of the castle in any given generation to redeem the heart of his family, starting with his wife's, going on to his children and those around him, then the sin and the imprisonment just gets passed on to the children, and they have to struggle with those same enemies. That's another place that Satan is at work, and we need to think about that, the life of our family and what has gone on before us, praying against generational sin, confessing sin that others did in our family that we really had no part in, but that the power of has been passed on to us. He works in cities. There are certain cities you go through where you just feel like something's dark there, don't you? My sister kind of has this gift of discernment, I think, and we were coming down Route 70 one day and stopping in a particular town, and I didn't notice anything. I'm just happily eating pizza, but she said, there's something dark in this town, and I can feel it. I think she's probably right. In the life of nations and cultures, he writes other storylines for our nation to live by other than the sacred romance. The storyline our nation is living by right in the 90s, I think, has something to do with diversion and busyness. We have the illusion that we're free to entertain ourselves. But maybe a truer picture is in a quote by Ivan Illich, who says, in a consumer society like ours, there are inevitably two kinds of slaves, prisoners of addiction, prisoners of envy. Maybe that's a truer picture of what's going on in the life of our nation, being slowly taken captive, kind of like putting a lobster in water and then turning on the heat. He doesn't know he's being boiled to death because it's happening so slowly. A recent study done by IBM and Apple for several corporations found that 25% of computer time in the company's studies was being used to download pornography. Is that not a picture of the captivity of a large part of America's soul right there? With the church, Satan goes about dismantling the sacred romance into a list of duties, moral behaviors. The movie Titanic illustrates very well, I think, Satan's storytelling job on the world. Everybody gets on this wonderful ship thinking they're traveling towards comfort and safety, What they're really heading for is death and disaster, and they haven't got a clue. Satan has done that job in our world really well at this point in human history. Why does God allow Satan to do so much evil? Though he's not given a free reign, he certainly seems to be on a very long leash at times, doesn't he? There's something about God and what he's also doing with our hearts that's part of the answer. The whole answer, I don't think we'll know until we get to heaven. But God counts on winning us through the desire of our heart. As John said, he can't make us puppets and robots. He wants lovers. He wants us as his lovers. Satan aims to seduce us to his party by convincing us that the desires of our heart are foolish and even wrong. He even used God's prophet. Doesn't Jeremiah tell us that? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? The answer to that is, once it's broken loose from Christ, yes, there is no place our heart will not go to get the water it was made for. Satan tries to set up in us the spirit of fear that John tells us about, a very specific spirit, the Scripture says. 
is out here among us and literally controls most of our lives, keeps us in the small stories that seem to promise some sort of safety. All of us, to one degree or another, everyone, are living out the storyline the enemy offers us. And that sentence may seem too dramatic. Eight years ago, I would have said, that's crazy. Most of us perhaps live in a not terribly evil place, at least in the moralistic sense of the word. We simply live where busyness or apathy or struggle with circumstances that won't change occupy most of our energy. And the enemy is perfectly happy to leave us there practicing our religion. We are already defeated. If you are in the larger story, in the battle that's going on, you will be in spiritual warfare. The only question is, do you recognize where it's coming from? Satan's first tactic is, I'm not here. It's just you struggling with all of these things. It's kind of like walking down the high school corridor with a friend and someone slaps you in the back of the head and looking around, all you see is your friend, so you slap him back. Meanwhile, the person that did it is down the hall laughing at the whole thing. That's a good picture of what Satan does with us all. But God has another purpose, and I want to kind of end with this, in spiritual warfare, in the winning of our hearts, in the freeing us to deeper communion with Him. And this goes back to the client I had been working with. One year, about three years into our journey, at three in the morning, still lots of stuff going on. I was on the phone with my client, and they were under severe spiritual attack. Uh, they described spirits in the room with them, a lot of stuff going on. I just began reading the scripture to them. I didn't know what else to do. And God's word broke the attack. But then I was left with a problem. Shall I hang up the phone and have the phone off the hook signal blast in their ear, wake them up and start the whole thing all over again? Or should I just leave the phone off the hook and have a $96 phone bill by tomorrow morning. As I was sitting there going through all this really important stuff, all of a sudden something happened in the room. As I said, I am not a charismatic person. But the way I would describe it to you now is that the light in the room changed. I would say it became more personal. I looked and my hand was up in the air. I didn't decide to put it up. But it was like my hand was saying, well, Brent, if you don't know what to do in the presence of holiness, I do. Uh, I can only describe whether it was an angel, whether it was God's Spirit. He came and ministered to me in some way deep in my heart. And if I try to put it into words, I can only say what he was saying was, Brent, forget about the battle. There's something more than that. I'm here. Rest in me. Let yourself sink into me. And literally, I felt like the Lord speaking to me in the words of the 23rd Psalm and other scriptures. And as all that began to, to take place, it dawned on me, the Lord's heart in spiritual warfare. He is so confident in the good, which of course is easy for him because he can see it, not so easy for us that he is even willing to use those kinds of hard things to draw us more deeply into communion with him, that is the clear message that he gave me that night. To finish the story on a couple of other lines, my son, 
The next morning after we prayed for him that night, got up, put on brightly colored clothes, was the same kid that he always was before. His salvation came through the spiritual attack on our family. God's purpose in spiritual warfare is to bring about even greater redemption. And he asks us, even in the midst of the attack, to turn to him and thirst even more deeply in the face of the enemy than we would ever dare. He asks us to believe in good in the presence of great evil. You've been listening to Brent Curtis on the Ransomed Heart podcast in the midst of a series we're doing on the Sacred Romance. Hope you're enjoying this as much as we are. And if you haven't had a chance to hear the earlier sessions, those are available on our podcast library. And of course, there's all sorts of new video features that we're also airing now on Ransomed Heart TV. If you haven't been on our website recently at ransomedheart.com.